I'd like us to begin by saying together the prayer that Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer. So if you bow your heads, we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Let's sing together a hymn of praise to our Father in heaven. Um, The words will be on the screen, but if you want to follow it, it's in the green Christophian hymn book number 76. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Hallelujah. Jesus, who we remember this morning, whose life, death and resurrection we celebrate and proclaim through the sharing of bread and drinking wine, did lots of his teaching by telling stories, parables to the people who followed him. And to introduce what I'm going to talk about this morning, I'd like, if you'll permit me, to tell you a story too. The church is like a tree that grows in our front garden. It's called the stag's horn, and I've brought a little branch here so you can see what it looks like. The stag's horn takes its name from the shape of the flower buds, which are these things here at the end of its branches. And I love this tree. I love it because just about this time of year, the leaves start changing colour, and you can see these green leaves here and this little frond here that's just starting to change colour. The leaves change from green to glowing hues of red and gold. It's like having the whole variety of a forest in autumn packed into a single tree. And like all trees, the stag's horn spreads its roots wide and deep. Its spread underground is just as broad as the canopy of leaves and branches above. What is distinctive about the stag's horn is that its roots send up little shoots, miniature stag's horn trees called suckers. And if you've been observant, you'll have seen some of these in the Bethel car park. They pop up everywhere, in my garden, in my next-door neighbour's garden. And they do this more than ever in times of great stress, perhaps when you try and prune the tree or when it's suffering from lack of water. And so I believe it is with the church. Connected to the tree, Christ, a network of believers spreads, sometimes visibly, like the branches and leaves above, sometimes invisibly, like the roots below. And in times of great stress, the church may grow out of sight as the stag's horn sends its roots deep underground, but then suddenly send up new new churches, just as the stag's horn sends up these little miniature stag's horn trees, the suckers. And each little stag's horn is just as perfect and beautiful as the original.
In a moment we're going to be thinking about people who need our prayers, our particular care and attention. And I'd like us to frame that with this plea, this request to our Father in Heaven to be open and receptive to the prayers that we say. And we'll do that by singing this song together. It's the tune that the band just played for us. Hear my prayer, O Lord. From the ends of the earth I cry. Your peace will lead me to a rock that is higher than I. Thanks to Alex and Kate for preparing this week's care news. Here's what I've been given. It's lovely to see Norman and Margaret at the Fraternal yesterday, where Alan depicted how his travels and missionary work in Kenya had enlightened his understanding of Isaiah 55. And you can download that talk as a podcast from the Bethel website. We've had a thank you card from Eloise and Dan for the flowers that we sent on the birth of their new baby, and it's at the back of the room on the board. There's no other specific care news, but we continue to remember and pray for God's blessing on all the members of the church that we don't see as often as we would like, for whatever reason. These include John Bonani, Bill Berry, Ben and Debbie, Rachel, Des and Phoebe, Tammy, Sarah Lewis, Alan McGaw, Tony and Sarah, Pauline, Haley and the children, Louise, Colin, Ben and Kirsten, Devon, Christine and their children. Our prayer theme for this month in our care news is to pray for those who show Jesus to each other and to others in their jobs as full-time parents. Does anybody else have anything that they'd like us to pray for this morning? Spend some time in silent prayer because of these people whose names I've read out, They will mean different things to you and some of them will be very close to you and you might want to spend that time thinking about them in particular. And if you're like me, there will be things on your heart, things that hurt you, worries that you're carrying that you don't feel comfortable saying out into the empty space of this room. And I'd like us to spend this time together then in God's presence, in each other's presence and in silence just bring these things to God in prayer. And then after a few minutes, I'll bring things to a conclusion. Father God, however far life takes us, however far away we might be, We know that when we call to you, you hear us. Father, in that silent time, you will have heard lots of people, your children, crying out to you and asking you to intervene in the circumstances of their lives. I pray that for all these things, Father, you will give us peace and in time your way will become clear in each individual circumstance. And so we leave our cares in your hands, Father, 
because they're big enough for all of them. Amen. I'd like us to hear a reading now to introduce what I'm going to say in a few moments. Martin's going to come and read for us a section from Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for it was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Why am I here? What are you doing here? Um, Maybe it's just something about this time of year when we as a church go through that process of nominations to think about how we best run and serve the church um, for the year ahead that gives me a kind of internal crisis about whether it's what Jesus really wanted at all. There's so little, I think, in the Gospels that gives us any clue or idea that Jesus intended the kind of church, the kind of churches um, that you and I are part of 
in the 21st century. And if he isn't clear, and if he says so little, how on earth do we know what to do? Jesus only uses the word that we recognise as church in two places in his spoken teaching in the Gospels. They both appear in the Gospel of Matthew, and I've chosen one, this passage from Matthew chapter 16, to help me and perhaps help you to get some ideas, some understanding about what church is really about, what Jesus might have had in mind. Another story. Three or four years ago, Becky and I went on holiday to Cornwall and we organised our days differently. Becky went and did a cookery course and I was left with a hired bike and chance to explore some of the churches round about. So I took my map and went off cycling. I had a good idea of where I wanted to go and I headed off for the first village for a chance to see this beautiful medieval church. And I arrived at the village and I walked through the churchyard to the church door and there was a sign saying the church is locked apply at the vicarage to the key I thought okay we'll see if he's around so found the vicarage next to the church rang the doorbell and the vicar answered and I said I'm on holiday I'm on a cycling tour I'd really love to come and look around your church and he said I don't think you can it's not here at the moment he said a wise thing didn't he because we make the mistake of confusing the building and the place with what church really is which is the people and it's what Jesus I think is um, getting at here in the way that he teaches his disciples The whole circumstance of this piece of teaching are really weird, and we'll get there, um, and we'll try and deal with the weirdness um, a bit later on. But how does it start with Jesus asking lots of questions? First of all, he doesn't say, who do people say that I am? He speaks about himself, perhaps, in the third person, and says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Which might be some kind of allusion to his prophetic destiny from the Old Testament or it might just be a way of talking about himself in the abstract and his disciples come up with all sorts of suggestions some say John the Baptist, other Elijah others Jeremiah or one of the prophets you can see where people were coming from when they heard Jesus and witnessed his teaching and ministry and Jesus asks another question and when he asks this question, he teaches us something really important. What's his question? And you, he asked, who do you say I am? And there might be lots of ways to understand why Jesus asked this question. But is it helpful to think about this question in this term, in these terms? Nobody else is responsible, Jack or Steve or Anne or Gladys for your faith and your response to Jesus nobody else's opinion will save you nobody else's opinion counts the real question here is who do you say I am 
It's not about the church that you belong to, the building that you come to on a Sunday or other days of the week. Who do you say I am? And that's the first bit of useful teaching, I think, that Jesus gives us about what church is like. It's about individuals. It's about individuals who have been asked that question by Jesus. Who do you say I am? And have responded, like Peter, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And let's give thanks for Peter and for the responses that we found in our own heart. Because as Jesus says, that kind of realisation about who Jesus is, is something that's revealed, it comes through faith. And Jesus goes on. Simon, son of Jonah, you are favoured indeed. You did not learn that from any human being. It was revealed to you by my heavenly father. And I say to you, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, this is where the Bible, the translations of the Bible start to let us down. Um, and the only way that I can get across to you what Jesus is doing here is to translate it for you further. It's a bit like Brother Green over there being asked by Jesus, who do you say I am? And him saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus saying back to Brother Green, I say to you, you are Pete. And in this Pete, I will grow my church. There's a little play on words here um, with Peter's name. And it just doesn't come across to us um, in, in the translations of the Bible um, that we have. And it's true. It is true. Peter, for all his faults and all the things that went wrong, and as we'll see, went wrong quite quickly in his relationship with Jesus, was one of the foundations of the church. He displayed great courage throughout his life in witnessing to this reality. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus used another word that the disciples didn't hear in the same way that we did. I say to you, you are Peter the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death will never conquer it. What did the disciples hear when Jesus said that? What we hear might be, on this rock I will build an organisation, a network of churches, a denomination. Those are the things those are the most immediate responses um, to hearing those words read to us. But what did the disciples hear when Jesus spoke to them in Aramaic? What did the first believers read when they read the Gospels in Greek? What they heard in Greek was the word ecclesia, which was a group in Greek society called out to assemble for a very specific political purpose. So for a single issue, perhaps a single issue political party, you might have an ecclesia, a group of people called out for this purpose to sort this problem out and then they disband and go and do something else. And in understanding that background, it makes me think that there's something about church that has to be fluid, that has to be dynamic, that has to be responsive to the demands that are placed upon it. But also Church is about a purpose, and we'll think about what that purpose might be right um, at the end of my talk. That's what 
believers would have heard if they'd been reading this in Greek? What if they've heard it um, in Aramaic? They would have heard Jesus saying, you are God's assembly, the assembly of Yahweh. And they would have thought about the children of Israel, the Jews, in the wilderness, brought together around the tabernacle, the temple, to worship God. And here is another true thing about church. Church is about people responding individually to that question, who do you say I am? Finding in it a purpose for their lives and gathering together around Jesus who, as they get closer to him, get closer to each other. That's the cliche and with it comes a problem. So we thought about the church's calling and what Jesus says about that. But as we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to each other and that inevitably, because we're human, brings about conflict. And I'm going to tell you about Ted. Ted was a member of the church that I grew up in. He's a big man and very forthright in his opinions, very bluntly spoken. And I remember a meeting where we were thinking about the business of the church and the debate went on and you could see that Ted was building up to say something and eventually he stood up, big man that he was, grasped the front of the seating in front of him and he said, if these pews go, then I'm leaving this church too. If the pews go, I go. Church had brought him into conflict with the views of other people. And it's a trivial example, it's silly. It seems silly in the eternal scheme of things. But for Ted, it had become the live or die issue. And he was prepared to stake everything, including um, his fellowship with other people on this one issue. And this is what happens to Peter. Things didn't go the way Peter had planned. We read on a little bit in Matthew chapter 16. And for this, um, when I play the scene out in my mind, I imagine Peter played by, I don't know, Al Pacino or Robert De Niro, one of those actors who's kind of given up acting and has gone in for shouting really loudly. So here we go. Picture of Al Pacino, Robert De Niro in your head as Peter. From that time, Jesus began to make it clear to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem, endure great suffering at the hands of the elders, chief priests and scribes, to be put to death and to be raised again on the third day. At this, Peter took hold of him and began to rebuke him. Heaven forbid, he said. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I never appreciated this before. Peter is so angry. He's so angry that he grabs hold of Jesus, the person who he's just said, you're the son of the living God, you're God's anointed, the Messiah. He grabs hold of him. You can imagine him shaking because he's so angry. This is not what I had in mind, Jesus, when I came to follow you. This is not what church is supposed to be like. Really angry, furious, and just like Ted, something had brought him into conflict. All his assumptions were suddenly being challenged. And Jesus' rebuke is harsh in the extreme. Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, Out of my sight, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The rock, the foundation on which Jesus was going to build his church, the peat in which he was going to grow it, become a quagmire. Or the stumbling block. You think as men think, not as God thinks. 
imagine your way into the story a little bit with me. So Jesus is there with his disciples. They've had this dialogue, this piece of teaching. Who do you say I am? The disciples have come out with some suggestions. And then Peter has said, you're God's anointed. You're his son. And Jesus heaps praise upon Peter and says, you've had a special revelation. This has been revealed to you by God. How do the other disciples respond to that? They might have gone, wow, I never thought of it like that. That's amazing. Maybe if they were like us and the Gospels tell us that they were, they might have been perhaps a bit envious or jealous of Peter and thinking, why didn't I get it? Why him and not me? We know that there was jostling amongst Jesus' disciples for favour and privilege. They had a lot to learn. And we don't know because it doesn't say, but perhaps that might have caused some resentment. And then what happens? Within seconds, Peter goes from being super spiritual, the rock on which the future church is going to be built, to Satan, the stumbling block. And how might the other disciples have responded to that? If it was admiration, does that turn to disillusionment and say, so what? You had this big revelation, Peter, but you know, you're still a loser after all. Or perhaps if their initial response was envy or jealousy, to go, yeah, well, just goes to show and makes them feel better about themselves. Being together around Jesus will bring us into conflict. It will challenge our assumptions continually. It will challenge our ideas. It will put us into conflict with other people. I think that's what's going on here and I think that's where the lesson is for us. The lesson that isn't in this passage and that we have to remember from the Gospels is that in spite of this, Peter didn't quit. Peter didn't quit. He kept on going and he messed up again and he didn't quit and he kept on going and in the end, um, he sorted it out. He didn't lose his temper. He was still having those big shouty arguments with Paul. There was still conflict going on. But Peter didn't quit. And if there's a lesson for me about my life in church, it's this. It ain't going to go my way all the time. Sometimes I will find my ideas and my beliefs about what's really important in conflict with those of others. And I guess then I've got a choice. Do I respond like Ted, although he didn't do this, and say, that's it, I can't have my own way, I'm off? Or do we stick with it? And what happens if we stick with it? Well, the people who stuck with Jesus, very shortly afterwards, were given a revelation of Jesus, the transfiguration, in all his might and all his power and his glory. And Peter would have missed that if he'd given up. But he didn't. He kept going and he saw something amazing because he didn't leave. So, we're called out to follow Jesus with a purpose. It brings us into conflict with other people and it challenges us to do something and to respond. And I said, there is some weird stuff going on here. Let's try and think about what that is as we um, come towards the end of what I've got to say and to sharing bread and wine together. Remember where we started. 
When he came to the territory of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, and so it goes on. Why are they there? Why are they in Caesarea Philippi? It's 26 miles north from Galilee. It's not even Jewish territory. This is the pagan world around God's holy land. What are they doing there? It's weird. It's really, really weird. It's not only weird because it's Gentile territory, because there's paganism going on. But remember, there's a temple there which is dedicated to Caesar Augustus. So we've got big time idolatry to a human being going on. Got a problem with the Ten Commandments going on. And also, another name for Caesar Philippi, Peneus, because people worship the god Pan there. Why are they there? Why does Jesus take them there to give them one of the most profound revelations about who he is. This is the moment that the Gospels hinge upon, this confession from Peter. You are God's anointed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If they quit at that moment, who knows what would have happened? If they'd gone, I can't deal with this, Jesus. I can't deal with suffering and crucifixion and resurrection. Nor can I deal with the prospect that you're holding out for me of being like a condemned criminal. Let's think about that for a minute. Went to Reddish Vale Country Park a couple of weeks ago and set out our picnic, enjoying our sandwiches. And then saw some guys working the land and they had big yellow fluorescent jackets on and stenciled across the back it said, community payback. Community payback. So... These were young men in trouble with the law on a sentence doing useful work in the community and made very conspicuous as they did it. It's not like the Deep South where they get handcuffed together in big chain guns and wear orange jumpsuits, but it's the same kind of thing. And the human response to that is to start looking at them and wondering what they did wrong that got them into this situation and wondering whether this community payback thing is actually going to work and whether it's going to turn their lives around or whether they're going to go back in the nick um, as soon as they get off the programme. These are human responses. And what Jesus says to us, what he said to his disciples when he says these words, anyone who wishes to be a follower of mine must renounce self, he must take up his cross and follow me. He's saying, you're going to look like those guys. We don't have public executions in 21st century Britain. We have no way of translating what Jesus is saying into terms that we can understand. The closest that we can get is to the questions that I was asking and the judgments that I was making. Look at those guys over there. Look at that condemned person. Jesus is saying to his disciples, that's how distinctive you're going to be if you're going to follow me. And isn't it amazing in spite of that that they persisted? and followed him. But anyway, they're in Caesarea Philippi. It's all a bit weird, isn't it? I don't know why they're there. Um, but here's a potential solution. Jesus took them, and he takes us, out of what's comfortable and familiar, what's safe and easy. That's not our mission field. That's not where we're called to serve. That's not where we're going to be as distinctive as those guys in the yellow fluorescent jackets. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, 
to the centre of goat worship and he says, I think to them. This community of people called out from the world around it, this ecclesia, this assembly of Yahweh, is going to include these kinds of people too. I can build my church with goat worshippers just as well as I can build it with good Jewish boys. That's what's really going on here, I think. It's shock. It's confrontation. Jesus is saying to them, this is where this work gets done. We did the towns of Galilee. We went and spoke into the synagogues. But I'm going to build my community, my church, out of these people too. Out of these people who do things that you probably can't even imagine because your lives have been so sheltered. Where does Jesus have to take me to make me feel that uncomfortable? Where does he have to take you? Where do we have to go? How do we have to change to be as distinctive as Jesus says we're going to be? As distinctive as condemned criminals on the way to the place of execution? That's the hanging question that I need to leave myself with and you with. So where have we come this morning? Jesus doesn't say very much explicitly about what church is like. And I've tried to explore a time when he does talk about church explicitly to see what church might really be about. It's about the group of people, not the place. It's about the calling they receive. Who do you say I am? Answer the question for yourselves. Those called out people accept, they have to, that conflict will follow as we rub the sharp edges off each other. And the question we have to answer ourselves is, do we go through that and our feelings and our responses, or do we quit? But if we quit, what are we going to miss? And there's a challenge. Jesus challenges us to look differently, to appear differently to the people around us. And he takes us from where we're comfortable to where we're deeply uncomfortable to prove to us that he can make a church out of anything. Remember the tree? As we share bread and wine together, think about the tree, Jesus, who calls us to follow him. Remember the stress, the lack of water, the pruning, the conflicts that inevitably happen. And then ask yourself this question. If those things happen to me, where will I pop up as the little suckers pop up from the roots of the staghorn? Where is it going to be? In my garden or somebody else's? However you respond, I pray that God will be with you. Amen. Before we share bread and wine together, I'd like us to sing another hymn. It ends like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
And so for those of us who have responded to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And taken up their cross and committed their lives to him. Our sharing of bread and wine together represents all sorts of things. Paul says, For the tradition which I handed to you came to me from the Lord himself. That on the night of his arrest, the Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks to God, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant sealed by my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in memory of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And so for Paul, sharing bread and wine, this tradition takes us right back to Peter and to those other believers who first responded to Jesus' question. Ben is going to come and offer our thanks for the bread that we share together. Father, you are great, awesome and good. Thank you for giving your son. Be with us now as we take this bread. Amen. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in this bread. Charles will come and give thanks for the wine. Father God, thank you for this time that we can share together. As we come now to take um, the cup and pass it between us, we recognise that it symbolises the lifeblood that flows between each one of us. Lord, as we pass it between ourselves, we are proclaiming who we believe our Lord to be. Our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, the Messiah, the one who came to save us from our sins. This is who we say he is. And Father, also as we take this wine, help us to realise that this is not an institution or an organisation that we're part of, but we're branches of a tree, and that our nourishment, our life, comes from being connected to the trunk, to the roots, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are one body because we all share in one cup. We'll end our service by saying a prayer together after we've sung our final hymn. For me, this hymn helps to pull together some of the things that we've shared this morning. It reminds us that although we are often troubled and sorrowful in this life and facing suffering that that time is limited and will one day be over it reminds us what church is really about it's about Jesus 
and him coming to find us and asking us that question, who do you say that I am? It reminds us that conflict is inevitable as we live together. But it urges us to persist because our future inheritance is greater than anything we can imagine. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.